Judges chapter 6, verse 1. I'm not going to read the entire story to you, but I, I, I think I'm going to read at least 10 chapters so that we can get a feel of what's happening with this individual named Gideon. Now, if you're not familiar with Judges, the book of Judges is just that. God raises up about 15 of them to come and deliver Israel, right? You would think there's like, well, judge, they're here to judge Israel. Well, they're, they're, they're more to deliver Israel from, from their, their bondage. And so God uses several men and women. And you see Deborah being a judge, for those of you that um, are familiar with the book of Judges. So that's what we have here. We have one of the judges, Gideon, who is going to uh, be asked to do something. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Now, this is what's interesting. Those of you that follow the, the, the genealogical order of things, the Midianites, they come from Abraham. One of his concubines had given Abraham a son named Midian, and here Abraham's children or descendants are having issues, right? So the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain cliffs, caves, and strongholds. In other words, they're hiding for their lives. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, that echo is killing me. Is it killing you? Not nobody else over here. Like, yes, it's killing me. Like, we have to do something with that echo. Um, <clears throat> whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped out to the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkey. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites and whose land you live, but you have not what? Listen, obeyed. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak and, and Oprah and belong that excuse me that belonged to Joash, the Ibrites, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you. Gideon replied, Pardon me? my Lord but the Lord is with us he says but if the Lord is with us why has all this happened to us doesn't that sound like us like if God is with me I, how many of us said that before like if, if God's really with me like why is all this happening to me 
I think it's fair. Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when he said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord? But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Then the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, living, leaving none alive. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word what you're doing. God, I pray that as we learn from Gideon's life, whatever it is that your spirit's going to speak to our hearts, God, that we would we'd be open to it. We'd be willing to accept, be willing to hear. Most importantly, Lord, that we would be willing to, to allow transformation to happen in our lives, in our hearts. God, we thank you. We give you the glory and the honor. In your holy name we're praying. Amen and amen. We'll turn to your neighbor and say, it's time to overcome fear. Oh, y'all didn't do it. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's time to overcome fear. A couple of weeks ago, we, we talked about fear, but we're going we're gonna to address it from a different point of view today. So my, my questions this morning are, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? You ever thought about that? What what frightens you? The idea of dying, maybe? A lot of people are afraid of death. The thought of being alone, maybe? Or success, people are afraid of success. What about public speaking? Or the fear of heights? If, if you're like me, you're not afraid of anything. How many of you are like me? Is there anyone like me? I'm not afraid of anything but Oreos. I just, God, I really fear Oreos. And, and I know you hear it all the time from your pastor's heart, but I, I fear nutty bars and sharks. It's like, if Oreos and Nutty Bars are in my house, there, there's, there's a great fear that comes over my life because I know I cannot control myself. Anyone have that kind of fear? No? Or maybe you're like Michael Scott from The Office. You're afraid of how much people will love you. Some of you are still asleep. The others, you'll wake up in a little bit. You're like, yes, that's what I fear. I'm afraid of how much people will love me. On a serious note, I I don't think there's a person alive or who's watching that doesn't have a fear of some sort, that doesn't have something that strikes their heart. It's it's natural to fear. It's okay to fear. It really is. I, I believe fear.
fear is a good thing. And we talked about this weeks ago, and I don't want to dive back into that, but fear is appropriate, right? Because when you're in a dangerous situation, you have to, if fear is what gives you the, the moment to either fight or flight, right? You got to decide, right? Fear is good. God gave it to us. It's a good thing. But most of us, we quote, we quote Second Timothy, right? But the Lord did not give us the spirit of fear, but a power and sound mind. And, and you misquote that and you misunderstand what Paul is saying. I'm telling you, fear is good. God gave us emotion. If it wasn't for fear, some of us would have done some really foolish things. But fear of consequences, fear of, of things blowing up or not doing, not coming out the way we wanted to, kind of holds us back a little bit, right? So then you're like, well, if God did not give us the spirit of fear, then how do we tackle fear? Because Proverbs 1, 7 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So is fear good or bad? <laughs> yes. The answer is yes. Yes. Fear is good. And fear becomes negative when we live in fear, right? When it comes to fear in the Lord, it's the evidence of us starting our journey into wisdom. We need to understand that. If you don't fear the Lord, then you are not a wise person. But if you fear the Lord, the Bible says that you, you are now entering this wisdom journey. And, and there's, there's, there's wisdom in your life. But on the other hand, if you do not fear the Lord, then you're a foolish person. You're a foolish person. Jesus always says it best. He says it in, in, in Matthew chapter 10. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, fear is appropriate. The Lord gave us this, this emotion. And, and, and this emotion, when used appropriately, it aligns our life with God. When it's used inappropriately, when you have fear that you are living in, well, it pulls you away from God. I mean, case in point, look at the Garden of Eden. It was inappropriate fear that, that Adam was hiding from the Lord. He no longer had reverence for God, right? And so fear, inappropriate fear, keeps us anchored in things that we're not supposed to be anchored in, right? Appropriate fear, according to Scripture, says I'm wise. Says I'm wise. There's nothing wrong with having fear in your life. We just can't live in fear. And so we have a story here in the sixth chapter of Judges by a man named Gideon. And Gideon, he's wrapped up in all kinds of fears. He's, he's fearing his enemy. That's why he's at the wine press, you know, threshing wheat, which is incongruent. You're not supposed to thresh wheat at the wine press, right? Because he's hiding from the Midianites. He, he has this fear of, fear of failure. God asked him, you need to go save Israel. He's like, I'm the least of Manasseh. I can't be the one to save Israel. He has a fear of war. You know, he He's just this bundle of fear. That's who, that's who Gideon is at this particular point in the story. And I know most of us, we read the story of Gideon, and, and we find him to be the least, the least of, of, of an example of faith and bravery. We're like, if we're going to talk about faith and bravery, we're not going to pull up Gideon. We're not going to pull Gideon out of the Bible. We're going to maybe pull Daniel, right? Or maybe we're going to look to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to say, those guys are full of faith and bravery. They refused to bow down, and so they were thrown into a fiery furnace, or they were put in the lion's den. That's, that's faith and bravery. 
And every sermon that I've ever heard or, or read and the studies that I've read about Gideon, most of them, they, they have this approach with this less enthusiastic point about Gideon's life that he's, he's just a coward. He's a person that lives in fear. And they point out the negative side of fear. And, and, and so I, I, I think that works. I think it's appropriate for the story. But I also think there's something else that we can probably pull from Gideon's fear. I, I think that if we were honest with ourselves, if we were honest of where, of where Gideon is in this, in this story of life, I think every one of us is Gideon. I think every one of us at some point of our life live with this, this fear of being overtaken, this fear of, of, of not being able to conquer, this fear of whatever strikes your heart, whatever frightens you, that we, we are like Gideon and we, we, we just not ready to tackle it, not ready to deal with it. And so there's there's this challenge. Maybe I need to change my microphone. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really getting bad. There's this challenge that, that we're being presented with. And, I, and when I say that we're all getting, I, I mean that, that we, can, we can be in his shoes. That, that there's, this, there's this sense of being human and having no courage sometimes. Having no bravery to go through the battle, to face what we need to face, right? And, and so imagine, because when you and I read this story in the 21st century, the context is a little hard for us because it's hard for us to imagine living in a war-stricken environment. It's hard for us to imagine that we have enemies on every side of our life that any given day they can ride through and they can, they can wreak havoc. They can take your wives and your children. They can take take your lives, they can, they can take your very, your very source of, 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 of sustenance as they did with the, with the children of Israel. They, they demolished their crops. They took over all their livestock. We don't live with that kind of pressure. We have no idea what that means. And so for us to look at Gideon and go, ah, this guy, he was a coward. Well, if we're in his situation, what would we do? How would we respond if there's all these enemies around us and at any moment, you know, they, they can come and, and take our lives? We might be hiding in the caves and we might be hiding in places where people can't find us. We might be out of, out of self-preservation. We might be taking our children and putting them somewhere safe. I don't know if we can be Gideon up yet and say he's a coward. I do know that every one of us has faced this idea of, of, of what it is to fear, right? We, we face this idea of, of maybe not a situation as horrible and as, as, as maybe insurmountable as Gideon, but every one of us, we've, we've faced situations in our current living where we're afraid. We're afraid of the outcome. We're afraid of the people that are attacking us. We're afraid of lacking. We're afraid of not getting through. I mean, in today's environment, we're afraid of coronavirus. We're afraid. So we can't really beat him up.
Zawar is overcoming the fear that suffocates our dreams and our spiritual destiny. That's the war that we're in in the 21st century. What, what are you afraid of that's, that's, that's suffocating your God dream? That's suffocating what God has spoken over you? That's suffocating your, your destiny, your spiritual destiny? What, what are you afraid of? Like I said, maybe it's death. Maybe it's public speaking. Maybe it's being alone that you're afraid of. But whatever is suffocating you, whatever fear is holding you back, you know, we, we look at this fragile character and, and we see that God turns his fear into strength. We see that, that, that God turns his doubt into faith and we, we see his cowardness coming to courage and, and, and it sounds like a great pep talk, but, but you know, there's, there's a lot of things that Gideon goes through before he gets this, this courage to go war. There's a lot of character development that God is doing in Gideon's life to, to get him past his fear. Now, I know all of us have fears, and I, my question is, are you willing and are you ready to allow God to do something in your life so that you can get past your fears? Because if you're not, then you're always going to be suffocated by your fears. You're always going to be handicapped by living in fear. And that's when Paul says, God did not give us the spirit of fear, but of power and a sound mind. Because... We're, we're not meant to live in our fear. In fact, we're not meant to live in any emotion. Like, well then, maybe I should just do a sermon just all emotions, right? Just talk about emotions. Like, how do you, how do you handle these emotions that God gives? Because they're God-given, but you have to appropriately handle them. So here, here, here are the points. The first thing I want you to see is that they did evil in the, in the eyes of the Lord. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6, 1 through 10. There, there seems to be a running theme with, with Israel, right? Last week, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And what was the evil that they did? Well, it seemed like the children of Israel had this gravitation towards idolatry. They, they had this issue. Their hearts wanted to serve foreign gods. Their hearts wanted something else besides God. Their hearts became restless. And I don't know, maybe you can relate to them. You have a restless heart. You're like, I've been serving God for one year or 10 years or 15 years, 20 years. Like, your heart can become restless. And that's what's happening here. Their heart has become restless. And so, Elijah dealt with it. They were worshiping Baal. And now, now, Gideon is dealing with it and, and they're worshiping the gods of the Amorites their hearts are wandering and the, and the Lord says that's evil in my eyes last week we talked about idolatry we said listen a working definition if we're going to understand the Old Testament and how God's working in the Old Testament you have to really have a, a good grasp of what idolatry is and how God looks at that and I said a working definition for us is idolatry is everything that has priority in our life over God right we're trying to make it very simple for the 21st century is anything in your life that has priority over God it could be anything so anything can be an idol? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Your unforgiveness can be an idol. Did you know that? The fact that you want to hold on to your unforgiveness, that itself can be an idol, and you are living in idolatry. So that's the working definition. It's like, it's like, what's supreme in my life? Whatever is supreme in my life, whatever has the most value in my life, that's the idol in my life. And, and, and the point is, is God most valuable in your life? Is he supreme in your life? Just be, and I think sometimes we measure that with how, how we stumble and fall sometimes. Listen, God can be supreme and you stumble and fall still. That's called humanity. You're either going to be like David after you stumble and fall, you're going to go back to God. Or you're going to be like Saul after you stumble and fall, you're just going to continue to live in your pride. When we get saved, we nowhere in the Bible does it say we become these perfect people. And if you ever run into Christians that say, well, I have no sin in my life or I have no issues in my life, run as fast as you can because that is a lie. The very fact that they're telling you that is a lie. You need to understand that we all wrestle with these things, but we can't live with them. There might be idolatry in our heart, but the difference between the person that wants to serve God and the person that doesn't is the person that has idolatry in their heart will deal with the idolatry. They will deal with it. Whatever it is. So let's unpack idolatry a little bit more. So here's, here's a second working definition of idolatry, right? The first one is idolatry is anything that has priority. The second is idolatry places man in charge of God. It places us in charge of God. But at a very terrible price. We, we lose our relationship with God if we choose to worship anything but God. Listen, if I worship idols, I control my God. You see how that works? You see how idolatry is so, it's such a slippery slope because any idol that I worship, I control him. I've made God small. I'm talking about Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've put God where I want him, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Scripture. So when I'm worshiping idols, I'm saying, God, you're a small God, and you're among these, uh, you're among these other gods, and I'm just going to put you in the category that I think you should be in. And so he won't intrude my life. So if I control God, then God won't ever question the issues of my heart. He won't ever question my character. He won't ever question those things. Why? Because I'm controlling my God. My God doesn't do that. My God loves everybody. My God says that, that we're, just, we're all going to heaven. My God says, right, and we make up all these things about God. That's what idolatry is, is that we control God. I won't let him intrude my life. And, and the greatest thing about idolatry is there's no repercussions. There is no consequences. There, there, are, there is nothing that's going to hold me accountable. Because if I control God, that means, that means what? Talk to me. If I control God, what do you think that means? I'm God. So everything that I do in my life is perfect. 
everything I say, everything I, I want to engage my life. Why? Because I'm God. And so what does idolatry do for us? Listen, this, this is deep. Idolatry takes, it takes God and it puts him in a very small place and it allows me to control him. But ultimately what idolatry does, it deifies humanity. That's what it does. It deifies humanity. So now I'm worshiping the created thing, which is me. I worship me. That's what humanity has done. We say idolatry. I don't deal with idolatry. I don't bow down to idols that are carved out of out of out of wood and 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 shaped out of gold and silver. No. That's too antiquated for me, and, and, and that's not where I'm at. Well, let's make our idols a little bit more sophisticated. Call me. I'm the idol. I'm the one I worship. I'm the one that gets to decide whatever happens in my life. I'm the one that gets to tell God where and when. I'm the one that schedules my appointments with God. I'm the one that says, God, I need you now, and you need to show up. I'm the, I'm the one that's calling the shots. That's what idolatry is in the 21st century. quiet. Are you still ready for victory? Are you still ready for God to, to do the victory? Like, I think before God can do a victory, a, a physical victory for you, he needs to do a spiritual victory in our character. War and peace. We're going to grapple. You're going to be like Jacob and you're going to grapple. So if I'm God, then everything in my life has to be according to me. That's why my relationships are dysfunctional. That's why my money is my focus because I'm God. That's why life becomes dissatisfying because I'm always leaving myself wanting. Why? Because I'm God. I can't satisfy the longings of my heart, but I try. I try through all kinds of avenues. So I make the rules for my life and I'm very dogmatic about the rules in my life and, and if you don't like my rules if you don't play by my rules if you don't if you don't want to adhere to my rules well then I don't need you in my life I don't want you in my life and so this is how we treat people why because I'm God I get to say what I want I get to act the way I want I get to treat anybody the way I want why because I'm God you ever heard the old saying my way or the highway yeah why why because I'm God you don't like it my way then get on out listen all idolatry attempts to whittle God down and suit him to our way of doing things, fit him into our comfortable little life, the patterns that, that won't harm me or the patterns that won't challenge me or challenge my thinking. That's what idolatry does. It puts God in this, in this, this little corner of my life and says, you don't have the right to challenge me. Romans 1 says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. He continues, he says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who lives forever. That's what we've done. You see, we're so sophisticated 
that we don't even know we did it. One of the things that, that's, that's dangerous about idolatry, I said it last week and I want to repeat it to, today, is that it's, it, it goes undetected when we do our own inventory. It goes undetected. Unless you and I are getting real with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can reveal it to you. But it's usually, it's usually someone in your life that says, you know what I've noticed about you lately? But we don't let people in those lives, people like that in our lives, because we're God. So those people challenge us. So we say, eh, I'm going to stay away from so-and-so because they always have something challenging to say to me. But when you allow real relationships to happen in your life, when you allow that, when you allow the born-again experience to happen, then you're allowing one another to sharpen each other, right? Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another man's life. And you're allowing someone to speak into your life and say, listen, I've noticed that you just, you just really, and I'm just being dramatic for, for delivery's sake, but you're being real selfish lately. I'm sure there's, there's a softer way to present that, right? And you're like, oh, I have been? And then you begin to play back the movie of your life and you're going, oh yeah, I can see it. See, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Here's the second thing. Go in the strength you have. So not only... God's addressing the evil. He says, listen, this is why you're in this mess. This is why Midian is all over you. This is why the people of the east are, 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 are having their way with you is because, because you've done evil. And because you've done evil, guess what God's doing? He's removing his provision. He's removing his protection. He's removing everything that God has provided for them. He's like, I'm going to take this away so I can get your attention, right? So he does. He does. What do they do? They, they cried out. They cried out to the Lord. And then God says, well, yeah, you're crying out, but do you remember when I delivered you out of Egypt? Do you remember when I, I took your forefathers and all of them and I, I crossed this, 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 this sea and I crushed the Egyptians? I did all that for you. Do you remember that? Apparently you forgot, right? That's God. And, and Gideon, he's, he's hiding and he's, he's, at, he's at the wine press and he's threshing wheat and, and, and God, out of nowhere, there, there's... There's an interesting phrase there. It says the angel of the Lord was sitting under the oak. That's, that, that's an interesting, you should go back and just study what that means, you know, the oak of the Lord and, and how God had a tree. And it just, it's just an interesting tidbit. I, I, I'm throwing that out there for you. But the angel of the Lord sits there and he sees Gideon doing what Gideon's doing. And he says, he says, mighty man of valor, depending on what translation you have, or, or it translates mighty warrior, right? Mighty warrior. I, I love this portion of the story. I really do. Um, because you, you look at it and you, and, you, and you see that Gideon isn't a mighty warrior. You see that Gideon is actually part of the, the problem. He's hiding. Someone should stand up for Israel. Someone should stand up and, and go and fight, whether they lose their life or not. Someone needs to stand up, and no one's wanting to stand up. And so it's just like God to always look for someone, always find someone. God is always looking, right? The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are going to and fro from the earth, looking for a heart that's turned towards him, right? That's what he's doing. And so when he's looking for someone, he's, he, when he pauses and he stops and he's like, listen, it's you. You're cowardice. You're, you're unfaithful. You, 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 don't, you don't really fit the, the, 
the prototype of, of someone that can lead an army. And God goes, but you're a mighty warrior. I mean, it's amazing to me, the contrast of, of, of what's happening here. And I don't know if God's ever contrast your life, right? Because some of us, we come and we're like, man, I don't deserve to be in the house of the Lord. I don't deserve God's blessings. But God sees it different. And when you allow, and when you allow God to be your hype man, I mean, things radically change. That's what God's doing here. He's looking at Gideon. He's like, I'm going to be your hype man. I, you deserve judgment. You deserve punishment. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hype you up and I'm going to call you mighty warrior. I'm going to call you man of valor. And so, and so God was encouraging Gideon, moving him from one point of, of, of lack of faith and lack of bravery to a point where he's like, wait a minute. I am a mighty warrior. You ever look yourself in the mirror like you do a double take, you're brushing your teeth and you, and then as soon as you're done, you walk and you look and you're like, wait a minute, I am good looking. Like, come on, like, why am I beating myself up? You know, like, you ever do that? You no, know, am I the only one? Like, you pass the mirror, you're like, wait a minute. I am skinny. I'm just kidding, right? Like, like, wait a minute. I'm getting there, right? It's like, it's like, you ever just encourage yourself? You look yourself in the mirror, you're like, oh, who cares what so-and-so says about me? Who cares what they think, right? Because, because that's what's happening here. I love it. I love it when people hype me up, man. I, I, you know, words of affirmation go a long way with me. They, when, when people speak positive things over me and they speak encouraging things and encouraging things, they speak, they speak uplifting words, right? And, and, and these words become beautiful and they're like, they're, they're like a fragrance that come into your life and they lift you up. And, and, and it, what's amazing is that if they're genuine and you know they're genuine, like your life just begins to, to soar a little bit. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it feels good. You, you know, when people say nice things about you, and, 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 and it might just be random people. You might not even know them, but they're saying these nice things about you, and, and you're like, man, that, that feels nice. But what if the right person said the right things about you? Someone that you value. Someone that, that has your heart. Someone that, that's in your circle of trust. And they look to you and they're like, you know, you, you're such a good person. I've watched you and you just genuinely love everybody. I love your energy. I love how you're always positive. I love, right, they start building you up. And, they, and the right person in your life can can change your day from, from a frown day to a smile day in a moment. Has to be the right person though, right? Or, or people. It can't, there's probably more than one person in your life that can do this. And so then your face lights up and your day gets better. You're like, I am mighty warrior. You see, God was the right person. When God comes to you and says, and says, you're a mighty warrior, it's not just anybody coming to you going, oh, you look good today. I like what you did with your hair. I like your outfit. No, this is the creator of the universe that sends the angel of the Lord who's sitting under the oak tree of God. And then he looks to Gideon and he says, you are a mighty warrior. That probably shot fire through his bones. It probably did something to his life. In other words, God looked at him and said, you matter. 
important to heaven. You're so important to heaven that I'm going to use you to deliver the millions of Israelites that are in bondage. You, Gideon, by yourself, I'm going to use you in a war that you're going to face because you matter, because I'm with you. He says, rise up and go in your own strength. He was pumping him up. He was like, look, you can get one more lift. You got it. Come on, come on, come on. You got it. I don't know if no one's looked at you lately and said, you matter. But I, I believe I can stand in the gap of, of heaven and look to this congregation, look to the people that are watching and say to you on behalf of scripture that you matter. That you matter. Some of you probably have never heard that in your entire life. And I'm here to tell you, mighty woman of God, I'm here to tell you, mighty man of God, you can do it. Whatever it is that you're facing, you can overcome because all of heaven says you matter. How do you know I matter, pastor? Because the Bible says, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, right? He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. If that doesn't tell you you matter, I don't know what will. But you matter. You can do it. You might be in a rough patch. You might be, be, be surrounded by your enemies. You might be hiding like Gideon. But I'm here to tell you that you matter. Oh, my goodness. It's like, it's like if, you, if you know an artist in your life, you're like, you're like are you an artist? Right? Because you notice they're good painting. But what if you said... Man, you're an amazing artist. It changes everything. You're a teacher, and you're you're a fabulous teacher. The modifier changes everything. And that's what God did to Gideon. He didn't say you're a man. He said you're a mighty warrior. The modifier changes everything. There's some modifiers in your life. You need to find them. You need to know what God has spoke over your life. You need to know that Isaiah, you know what he tells Isaiah, he's like, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Listen, you will do this. God will strengthen you. Romans 8 says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, ain't neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, heights or depth or anything in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Are you getting the modifiers in your life? God is with you. Go in the strength of the Lord. You can do this. Oh, its story gets better. It, it, it just, as it unfolds, right? So God starts with, you have did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then he says, he says, go in the strength of God, right? Go in your strength. Here's the third thing he says. He says, I'll wait until you return. He says, I'll wait until you return. Judges 6, verses 17 through 24. There's, there's an interesting thing happening here. It's how Gideon responds to God. 
Gideon realizes that <laughs> he doesn't have the full revelation yet, but he knows something's with him that, or someone's with him that's not of this earth. So he, he, he says this phrase. I, I love it. I, I think it's so cool. Gideon, Gideon 6, 17 says, If now I have found favor in the eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. He says, Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord says, I will wait until you return. That phrase, I will wait until you return, is amazing. To me, it's more amazing than God being Gideon's hype man. He says, I will wait until you return. Then he returns. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat because he returned. He went and got his offering, right? And then this is what happens. The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. Then Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord. He exclaimed, Alas, sovereign God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord, and there he call it the Lord is peace my goodness that one phrase of the story is amazing it's amazing because God Gideon has this moment right he's not sure if it's the angel of the Lord he just knows something's not human with him right it's a spiritual being and then when he has the, the realization you know what he says he says wait he says wait I need to go and prepare an offering why why does he do that because he had been he had been trained and he had been taught through his Hebrew roots that when you are in the presence of God, you bring an offering to God. You bring an offering to God. You don't just show up any whole way. You don't just decide that I'm going to come and I'm just going to present myself to God. No, you know what he does? He says, wait, I got to go get something. This came alive to me because when, when I really like starting preaching early. Good call, Terry. I have so much time. <laughs> She's like, we're gonna cut. So we're gonna cut worship at ten twenty. I'm like, are you sure we should do that? Look, I, I got so much time in the world. Uh, Y'all okay with that, right? Yeah. Like, no, I want to worship. No, you need the word. <laughs> you need the word. Thank you, Elsa. They'll get it later. was I? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Thank you, Pastor Greg. Taking notes, not doing internet. There you go. I've, I've been in church. I, at this point in my life, I can say all my life. I mean, I, good night. It just, anything past 15, 20 years, you might as well say you've been in church all your life, right? I've been in church pretty much all my life. And I've, I've shown up without an offering. I've shown up to church without an offering. And in my heart, I've been like, eh, I'll give it next week. Or, I'll give it later. It's no big deal, right? That's the mentality I had. As long as I give it, that's what's important, right? That's the mentality I had. Well, if, if I live in idolatry, yes, that's okay because it's, I'm God and I get to decide how I want to interact with God. But, and I've gone like, 
oh, I don't have to worry about offering. I'll just bring it later, right? And today I'm really spoiled because my assistant, she just writes out the offering. She has a checkbook. She knows what to put. So I don't ever miss it now. I don't ever have to have that mentality like, like hey, I, I forgot offering. But according to scripture, if you forget offering, you need to ask the Lord. Like, this is what Gideon does. He says, will you wait here? I'm going to go to the ATM and I'm going to go get my offering and I'm going to bring it back to the house of the Lord. In fact, I'm going to go home. I'm going to get my checkbook and I'm going to bring it into the house of the Lord. He's like, how are you relating that to today's gospel, to the New Testament? Stay with me. I, I love unpacking things for you. I really do. Because when you hit the revelation that God wants you to see, no battle that you ever face will ever overcome you because you know how to get the attention of God. Did you know there's a certain way to get God's attention? Even Paul said it to the church of Ephesus. He says, find out what pleases God and do it. Do it. Some of us, were so hung up on the fact that you have to give an offering, that you have to give something that you work hard for. And I'm trying to tell you, that is beneath us as born-again believers. Because if we would understand that if God be for us, then who could be against us? It doesn't matter if I give 100% to God. He will take care of all of my needs. Do you really believe it? That's the question. Can you really do it? Have you ever done it? It's like, oh, again, the offering. Listen, it must be an issue because even in the eyes of the Lord, the children of Israel kept repeating the same old sin, which involved their offering. Because when you're in idolatry, you don't give to the Lord. You keep it. You give to your retirement. You give to your IRA accounts, your 401 accounts, your, your MPI accounts, whatever account that you want to give to that you think you're doing yourself the, the, the favor of saving your money. I'm telling you that God is concerned how you show up on Sundays. He's concerned how you show up to any part of worship in his in here in your life. He is very concerned. And, and Gideon knew it. And because Gideon knew it, you know what he says? He says, please wait here. And here's the, here's the grace and the beauty of God. He says, I will wait until you return. I want to see what you come back with. I want to see what you come back with. Ha. So he does. And Gideon comes back. And he, he builds an altar to the Lord. And he sacrifices to God. And then after he sacrifices, what happens? It's this peace. He says, he says there's this peace that came over the place. And he said, this is, this is, I'm going to call this place the Lord of peace. Or another translation would be the Lord my peace. He he cares. He cares what you bring. Listen, throughout scripture, there's implications of how our offerings are connected to our victories. There. They're, they're incredible throughout scripture. They're incredible. 
Look at Jesus when he talks to Zacchaeus. He says Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was a man who was a thief that stole, and he hurt people, and he and he really he was a tax collector, so he he mistreated people on all kinds of level. And then at the very end of Zacchaeus's story, Zacchaeus has this encounter with Jesus, and what does he say to Jesus? He says, Jesus, I'm going to repay everyone that I stole from four times. And what does Jesus say? He says, Salvation has come into this house. It wasn't until Zacchaeus' confession with his offering to God, it was an offering unto the Lord that he would go and repay people four times that he had stolen from them. What does Jesus say? If you've done, if you've done this to the least of me, you've done it unto me. That's what Zacchaeus did. He went and he did it to the least of them, and he and he got he got salvation that day. And Jesus says, Salvation is coming to the house of the Lord this day. You don't think that God is concerned about your offering? You don't think he's concerned about your 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 resources? Listen, ask Ananias and Sophia. This is all New Testament stuff. They come into the house of Peter, right? And they're they're in front of Peter and they sold their land. They sold their land so that they can give to the church. And they decided, you know what? It probably sold for more than they thought it was worth, and they had extra money. And so they kept back a portion of what they sold. And they came and they presented the other half to Peter and the disciples. And what happened? Peter asked a simple question. Is this everything? And they're like, yes, it's everything. Boom. Dead. Dead. Gone. Read it for yourself in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit killed them. Took their life. Why? Because God cares how we present ourselves to him. Now, thank God he's still not operating that way. I don't know why he doesn't, but there was a reason for it, and that's that's a whole other sermon. But you need to understand, there's connection to how we give to the Lord. Don't say you love God, but you haven't given a single dime to his church. That was weak. Listen, don't say that you love your church, that you support your church, that you support the kingdom of God, and yet you give nothing in resources to God. Your time does not count. God is talking about monetary blessings into his house. (laughs) I don't know what you want me to say. Here's another one. Ask Achan when they come out of when they come out of Egypt and Joshua was about to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. What does Achan do? He takes the first. He takes the first from God. And what does God do? God punishes the whole nation of Israel because of one person that took what belonged to the Lord. You're like, well, I'm blessed. Like I haven't given tithes or offerings to that kingdom of God and I'm still blessed. That's the mercy of God in your life, sir. It's the mercy of God in your life, ma'am. You want to live that way? Answer to him when you see him. That's all I can tell you. I'm just the deliverer, just the messenger, right? You have to decide. Listen, how am I going to get God's attention in the midst of this battle? How am I going to ask God to deliver me in the midst of this battle? Some of you might have to say, God, can you wait a minute? I need to go get my tithe and my offering. I need to go present it to you. I need to lay it before you. you. You want a victory, but God's not going to give you a victory because you don't know how to present yourself to God. You don't know how to find out what pleases God. There's peace. Gideon had peace. He had peace. What God was about to ask him to do is to go face the Midianites and every country from the east, or every warriors from the east. He says, this is what you're going to do. And Gideon all of a sudden had this peace over his life. Why? Because he gave to the Lord what belonged to God. You want peace? 
You want victory? It's connected. You decide. Here's the point. Is that God's waiting for you. He's still waiting. He's still waiting. You can make a decision. You can make a choice today. God's waiting. Just like the prodigal son that took everything that belonged to his father, the father is waiting. God is waiting. How long does he wait? I don't know. When will he shut the gates? I don't know. I'm not God. I can tell you, though, that the gates do shut. I can tell you that God does say enough's enough. Read it for yourself in Romans 1 and 2. Read it for yourself in Hebrews chapter 6. Read it for yourself in in Ephesians. You can go to every book and you can find that God says, well, enough's enough. I've given it to you. I, I just know that his mercies are new every day. But don't test him. Don't test him. If you didn't give your offering... Get your offering. Get it to the house of the Lord. Get God's attention. Here's here's the final thing. My goodness, we're going to stop worship at 1015. I'm telling you. Can we just do away with worship? We're just going to do away. No, no. Y'all already got me fired up. Y'all are like, no, no. Listen, you want to worship? Worship before you get into the house of the Lord. And let's get the word in. (laughs) Here we go. Uh, Y'all are like, like, no, don't take worship away. Yeah, you can enter God's kingdom with with thanksgiving in your heart before you wake up. Come on, wake up, get in your car with thanksgiving in your heart, worship on the way. Everyone took care of that, and when we get here, we'll just preach. <laughs> we'll, we'll go. We'll go to the the old synagogue way. We'll just do it Jesus's way. Oh. You know, I'm just kidding with you. Just want to push your buttons. Some of you got so mad. Uh, you know I love you right I don't even know if I should preach this last point hey y'all got mad about canceling worship y'all gonna get mad about this y'all ain't ready for it y'all ready Here's the final point out of Genesis, uh, Judges chapter 6. God tells him, you got to tear down your father's altars. You want to win the battle? You got to tear down the father's altars. You cannot go into battle with idolatry in your heart. You cannot go into battle with altars erected that do not please me. Listen, Genesis, Judges chapter 6, the same night the Lord said, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altars to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord, your God, on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that they cut down, offering the second bull as a burnt offering. And so the Bible says Gideon did this with his servants. I, I need you to get this point. Like, it's this point 
for me is beyond God waiting. It's beyond God being your hype man, encouraging you. This point is, is everything crashes if this point does not come together in your heart or in your spirit. Everything crashes. You know why? Because you won't tear down your father's altar. You won't tear it down. Now, in this context, it's a negative thing. The father's altar is a negative thing. And, and so you have to see it in how God is approaching it with Gideon. He's like, listen, the children of Israel have been worshiping idols. And so before we move forward, Gideon, before I give you victory over the, the Midianites and the, the people of the east, you're going to have to tear down altars. And Gideon knew what this meant. The Bible says he did it at night because he knew if he had did it in the middle of the day, they would have killed him. They would have taken his life. That's how serious it was in, in, in Gideon's day to tear down the father's altars, to tear down the altars that they had been worshiping for over seven years. I mean, think about this, church. We are very passionate about things in our church. Very passionate. We have traditions. We have things that we do. And, and if certain things are removed from our church, we get very upset about it. Some people more upset than others. Some people are okay with removing things. Some people are okay with adding things. And we have all types of personalities in here. But when we take something out that, that, that we don't agree with, we get angry. See, but back in Gideon's day, they were going to they would stone him. It would it wouldn't have just stayed with anger. They they would have they would have just killed him. Here here's the point so we can we can close out and be done. Here's the point is the Bible tells us in in Exodus with Moses that the sins of the father will be passed down from generation to generation. There, there, there's some of us use it as curses. We'll say the curses of one generation to the next, right? But I, I kind of want to use it in a more contemporary term. I, I want to talk about generational habits or patterns rather than curses and sin. Because one, sin it's it's kind of an antiquated word to our culture. So we don't really understand, like, oh, there's no sin in my life. There's nothing from the past that has, that has attached to my life, right? Or curses, like, I'm not under a curse. The blood of Jesus is in my life. And, and so there's no curses in my life. So I want to talk about patterns or habits that you have seen in your life that come from your parents. And they're not, they're not, these are the negative patterns, Right? These are the patterns in your life that you go, man, I'm just like my mother. Right? You catch yourself doing something and you're like, you swore when you were a teenager, I will never do that. I will never do that. And then all of a sudden you did it and you're like, oh my gosh, I turned into my mother. Right? Or your father, like, I'm, I'm just like my father. We say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? You're, you're a chip off the old block. Like those are, those are colloquialisms to identify this idea that, that we're no different from our parents. 
And the Bible, again, uses the, this phraseology called the sins of the father will pass down from one generation to the next. So in other words, there are some things in your life that you know are creeping up that come from your generational line. Some of us, you're like, you're like, you can't get rid of this, this greed issue. But if you start chasing your generational line, you're like, man, I didn't realize like, like my dad and my, or my mom or my grandparents, they wrestled with this or, or this, this gossip issue, whatever patterns in your life that you, that are rising in your life or have rose in your life. And you're like, I don't like that. Right. So if you go to a psychologist, you go to a counselor, what they're going to do, they're going to say, they're going to say, okay, let's talk about your childhood. Give me your earliest childhood memory, right? Let's talk about those things. Let's bring them up, right? We've, we've suppressed them and we've put them underneath. But I'm here to tell you this morning that there's some altars in your life that you need to tear down. There's some things in your life that you've allowed patterns and, 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 and you've allowed habits from, from your parents to, to be introduced into your life that you keep doing. And you're like, why do I keep doing this? I don't want to do this, right? So we become like Paul. The thing that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. The thing that I should be doing, I don't do. Why does that happen? Well, a lot of it is because of how we were raised in our home. A lot of it is what we've seen in our home. And so there's this, there's this connection between between how our parents raised us and some of their things that they never overcame. And so when you're not living in, in where in the right relationship with the Lord, guess what your default's going to be? It's going to be those patterns and those habits. Naturally. Understand me. There are some good things about our parents. There are some great traits and character traits about our parents. And those things should stay with you. And you should remember those things if your parents have gone to be with the Lord. But there are also some things that you should not take with you because they're human too. Some of us, we are captured by fear because our parents are captured by fear. There are patterns. So not only are there generational habits and patterns that we need to address, but you need to ask yourself, what, what patterns or habits am I leaving my children? What am I doing in my life? What, what does my life look like towards my children that they could be mimicking and they could be, you know, taking in these things and, and, and it's, it's, sub, it's subconsciously. It just happens. Y'all are quiet. Did you, did you want me to finish it? Yes? No? Are you okay? So there's, there's some things that you can do. Listen to what Nehemiah says. He says, those who survived the exile and are back in the providence are in a great trouble and disgrace. He's talking about Jerusalem again. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days. I mourned and fast and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenants of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be tentative and your eyes open to Hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. This is what he does. He says, I confess 
the sins of the Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws that you have gave your servant Moses. You know who else does this? Is Daniel. Daniel says in the ninth chapter, he says, he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commands. He says, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and princes and our ancestors, to all the people of the land. Listen, there's, there's something to be said. It doesn't mean when, when Nehemiah and Daniel begin to pray this confession of prayer, it doesn't mean that they themselves have committed all the sins of their ancestors or their fathers. But they recognize that there are patterns and there are habits that the people maybe have endured or maybe have adapted to. And so what do they do? They, rep they repent on behalf of. Like we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have been wicked. We have, have done these things. You see, when the, the whole story is pivoted on this moment of Gideon can tear down the altars of his father. Because if he can't, the battle that's about to happen in chapter 7, there's no victory in it. But because he takes care of the character issue, God took care of the physical issue. Are you getting the image here? If you take care of the character issue, God will take care of the physical needs that you have. And so you have to have in your heart and you have to be willing to say, I have sinned. I have done wrong. We have done this. We have abandoned you. Oh, come on church, if we're ever going to see the victory of the Lord, we're ever going to see a revival happen in Laredo, there has to be a group of people that are saying we have sinned and we have done wrong and we have and, and, and are you getting the message here? If we could never come to that point of including our grotesque decisions before God oh my goodness then you're missing the whole point We, someone has to stand in the gap. Someone has to be willing to say, we have sinned. We have rebelled. And Gideon was willing to do it. He recognized it. He was willing to do it. So he went and got his offering. And then he got his second bull. And the second offering, don't get me started on the second offering. The second offering was the one that God was most pleased with. Because it was the one that tore down all the altars. And you know what he did? The Bible says he built proper altars to the Lord. <laughs> Church. If this can get in our spirit, if it can get in our spirit, there could be a radical change, a radical change in this community. Are we saying when we cry out to God that we have committed all the sins of the people of the past, all the patterns of our parents? No, 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 we're not. But we're acknowledging that we, the people, need to stand in the gap and say, God, we have sinned. Jesus says it this way, and we, if we can close, I don't know where the worship team is. I've gone way too long. They've given me way too much time. We, should, we shouldn't do a 1020. But listen.
if we don't if we're not willing to tear down altars that have been built and build up proper ones then we're we're just playing church we're just playing church do we really want a revival from God do we really want to see the massive the masses saved do we want to see do we want to see people healed do we want to see these things happen then then someone's going to have to be willing to say we have sinned we have done wrong in the eyes of the Lord there and and beyond that that's corporate beyond that someone some of you have to break down some father altars some of you have temper from your father or your mother. Some of you have issues that, that, have been, that have been passed down from generation to generation that you need to break. We need to ask ourselves, what are we passing down to our kids? What are we leaving for them? We're teaching them to be fearful. We're teaching them to be negative and... and and, and, and pessimistic? Are we teaching them to be these people that complain and gripe about everything? I mean, those are patterns. Those are habits. Are we teaching them how to hold grudges and resentment towards people that have offended us? I mean, what are we teaching them? Because those are the patterns and those are the things that we're passing down. Sometimes we like living in those patterns. We like living in those habits. 